It gives me great pleasure to welcome you to uh, Hamdan bin Muhammad Smart University Community uh, Seminar Series. My name is Nabil Baidun. I'm the Vice Chancellor for Academic Affairs at Hamdan bin Muhammad Smart University. And our seminar today is online teaching and learning through disruption, an important topic where we're trying to address the challenges facing schools, educational institutions, who are trying to transform their education system from conventional system to, the, to online uh, learning. That challenge is not an easy one. We tried during the last two years to address these within the UAE, and today we will provide you with some of the learning that we have generated in the United Arab Emirates okay, in transferring conventional classroom to online classroom. That migration from conventional to online is not straightforward. It affects not only the instructors, the teachers, but the learner, the students, we call them learners. The uh, uh, transformation is beyond technicality. We worked very hard during the last couple of months to ensure that instructors, students in the United Arab Emirates, okay, are smoothly transferred and the impact of that uh, transformation has been positive not, at, not, not negative at all. And that importance, okay, was realized by HPMSU while ago. Since the start, we made sure that people understand when you are uh, teaching online, right, there are things that you need to know. There, are, uh, there is a preparation that you need to go through we do that in a scientific and structured manner. HBMSU was there to help schools, teachers within the UAE and outside the United Arab Emirates. We were to, there to make sure that that transformation was done scientifically correct. In order to do, to go beyond the, uh, the, the experience that we have generated at HBMSU, we tried to basically during the summer of 2020 to look at the views of those stakeholders, those people who are affected by the learning during COVID-19. More than 2,500 participants took part in a survey where we asked them about their impact, their preparation, the efficiency and the outcome of the learning, okay, when it is done online. Okay. The uh, information that we collected was so important, right? And we invite you to basically look at the report that we produce. It is available on our website and it is available also uh, with the team. Um, uh, uh, that is uh, in charge of this seminar uh, today. 
the experience of the UAE is a unique one. The United Arab Emirates was the only country that worked with the United with UNESCO and several of the major companies uh, to make sure that we give helping hand from the United Arab Emirates to the rest of the world. And we've done that, okay, through a series of crash courses to prepare those instructors to ensure that they are effective and efficient and they are well prepared when we do things online. We obviously do um, uh, uh, realize that we cannot take those people for uh, uh, a, a complete course, which we have. We did that in a different way and we've done it successfully in Arabic, English, and several other languages. That experience has benefited a lot of people, especially those who have been deprived from accessing education during COVID. Right? We made sure that education remained there even during those difficult circumstances. We believe that online learning will be there to stay and the experience that we have is available for you to uh, basically benefit from. The team today will uh, share with you our experience. It, they will share with you the perspective from those stakeholders that we spoke with you. And I, like yourself, will be uh, looking forward to uh, hearing those experts of you. And without further ado, I will welcome you again on behalf of the Chancellor, Dr. Mansour, who has been um, committed and ensure our commitment at the university to uh, facilitate the transformation uh, to online learning in the UAE and throughout the world. I wish you all the best in that seminar. Thank you, Professor Nabil. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Salatu wa salam ala ashraf al-anbiya Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'i. A warm welcome to Hamdan and Muhammad Smart University and to all who have joined us today in this engaging webinar under the title The Transforming Transition of K-12 Schools to Online Learning, the case of the United Arab Emirates. My name is Fatma Shihi. I am a Hamdan and Muhammad Smart University graduate on Master of Education Online Leadership Program and I'll be moderating today's panel session. Due to COVID-19, schools in the United Arab Emirates, teachers and students from both public and private sectors have moved radically in using technology to deliver teaching and learning. At the start of COVID-19, schools were immediately asked to change the way they deliver teaching and learning. And as a result, a group of researchers from Hamdan and Mohammed Smart University put their heads together to explore the impact of this sudden transition to a technologically driven form of learning in K-12 schools in the United Arab Emirates. The research is based on four dynamic perspectives, which are school principals, teachers, parents, and students. Join our experts today as we explore the different practices using adopted by schools in the United Arab Emirates during the pandemic and the impact of this sudden transition 
to a technologically driven form of learning in K-12 schools in the United Arab Emirates. So firstly, I would like to welcome our first panelist, Victoria Khadija Zorbi, who is an associate professor in educational leadership. And she is the program chair at the School of E-Education at Hamdan and Mohammed Smart University for the last 10 years. Welcome, Victoria. Victoria Khadija. I'm with you, Fatma. Thank you so much for that uh, very informative introduction. Thank you, Fatma. And uh, now I will also welcome the, our second panelist, Ms. Mayer Hawari. Mayer Hawari, who is the chairwoman of the Board of Governance at Dubai Carmel School. Welcome, Mayer. Uh, your mic, Maya, is not clear. Yeah, I'm unmuted. I'm sorry. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Thank you so much for that introduction. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure. It's welcome. So before we start, I would just want to remind our audience that they can use the Q&A icon on the Zoom so that they can write all the questions they have. And the end of our session, we'll answer those questions, inshallah. So Dr. Khadija, can you give us an overview of the study of that Hamdan bin Muhammad Smart University led? Thank you so much, uh, Fatma. A warm welcome to our colleagues. If you're in the UAE, a warm welcome. If you're uh, globally everywhere, um, I hope that the session today is going to be an engaging session. Um, we all know that uh, when the uh, COVID-19 actually took place back in um, March uh, 2020, the, 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 it hit almost every aspect of any individual's uh, life. And one of the key um, key issues that the education system was, was, was forced to do was actually shut down schools physically. Um, we can say uh, wholeheartedly that schools, many schools internationally, weren't actually prepared for that transition from being full, fully campus-based schools to actually then transferring to, to, to being totally online. And it really wasn't, um, it wasn't a cascaded uh, process. It wasn't a phased through process. It wasn't, you know what, let's have a month of physical and then a month of online or, or blended learning. Schools were in fact uh, forced by many governments uh, for, uh, looking out for the well-being of teachers, community, members of society and the students and kids themselves. They literally transferred to online learning. Now, if you look, Fatima, if you look at uh, things um, from, uh, from sort of a grounded perspective at a school level, K-12 school level, we can definitely say, and I'm sure that Ms. Maya will agree, that many schools were not prepared for that transition. Yeah. And, and, and many schools actually, actually started sort of running around to look at what the, some of the best practices of going fully online. Uh, the situation in the United Arab Emirates particularly in the, in, the, in the government sector and also in the private sector, you can have found that they were prepared um, to a certain extent and um, policymakers quickly, Fatima, took a really, really proactive approach and not a reactive approach by making sure that the well-being and safety of the kids and the teachers and the teaching force was ultimately a priority. And you found that they tried to, as much as possible, to transfer to online learning as quickly as possible. What did we do uh, as Hamdan uh, uh, Muhammad Smart University? Obviously, being the pioneers of online learning, and we've been doing this for at least 14, 15, 16 years, um, we were prepared as an institution, as a higher educational institution, 
And we reached out to the community, we reached out to the private sector, and we reached out to the government sector, and we said, we're here to support and help as much as possible in terms of mentoring, in terms of facilitating, in terms of training schools, um, leaders, and the teaching force, uh, uh, in, in transferring them literally from their physical campuses to online campuses. And it was part of our, and it, it still is part of our social corporate responsibility and the impact that we have um, on, on helping schools continue the journey and continuing the mission that they've been given to do without obviously any interruptions. So what did we do at Hamdan Mohammed Smart University? So we can say that it took us a couple of weeks to get ourselves together to really see what the situation was on, on the ground. Um, so Fatma, uh, between the 15th, and I would probably say the sort of 15th uh, to the 30th of July, 2020, um, at the start of July, it would probably say, I suppose, in terms of getting the researchers together, we acted immediately, probably around May, June time. So literally a couple of weeks within uh, COVID-19 kicking in, we uh, gathered together a, a team of researchers. The team of researchers were made up of full-time faculty members at the at the, uh, the university, at Hamden Smart University. We also relied on our uh, virtual research teams, uh, colleagues that were working with us part-time, associate uh, colleagues working elsewhere. We also relied, Fatma, on alumni, uh, which are obviously our uh, graduates. And so we tried to get a holistic perspective and get people involved at all scales to try and actually see what, um, how this transition to being fully online was taking place and was it really effective and what were the major challenges? And I'll go into some of the key objectives of research. So Fatma, between uh, 15th and the 30th of July, we actually started collecting data. It took us obviously a couple of weeks to get our research tools into place. Um, we targeted a, a cohort of 2,692 participants. And when I mean participants, uh, colleagues, uh, members of the public, I'm talking about uh, students, K-12 students. I'm talking about teachers. I'm talking about school principals. And I'm talking about parents. This research that we've actually conducted at Hamden Smart University is the first of its type in the UAE. And the reason I say that it's normally research looks at one perspective. This is a multi-dimensional perspective that actually has covered all key stakeholders, i.e. the students themselves, the parents, the teachers, and the school leaders. And what did we want to do out of this research? What was our aim? We, we created obviously a research a, a survey and the whole purpose of that survey was to really um, measure the impact of transforming regular schools on regular campuses to, bullet, to fully, sorry, to fully being full, uh, fully on, online. And the impact that this had on a number of factors, and I'll go into those factors in a little while. Um, I just want to remind uh, Fatima, my colleagues and panelists and, and, and members of the public that you're, if we all were to recollect and remember that back in June, July of 2020, things were really, really hectic and reach out to the, reaching out to members of the, the public was, was also not an easy task. Schools were very, very focused on basically surviving and making sure that students' education wasn't interrupted. And so us going in at that peak was an actual challenge for us as researchers and it was a challenge for us as an institution. But yet we overcame those challenges because we felt that out of this research, we were able to look at how we actually manage the, the, the educational landscape at times of crisis. So Fatma, I hope that's given an overview of what we actually did and where we started. It give us a clear idea about the research and its implications. So Doctor, can you tell us something about the sample size of the research? 
Okay, so um, we obviously distributed our um, survey to um, obviously the, the, the public and the, and the private sector, to parents, students and teachers, and obviously school principals. In terms of what came back, we had a cohort of Fatma of 2,692 participants from K-12 communities. So we didn't look at the higher education sector. We literally focused on K-12, which means basically, if anybody doesn't know what K-12 is, it's basically KG-1 all the way up to grade 12 schooling. Um, and so that it's, I would say it was a representative sample. Um, and 2,692 uh, Fatma in terms of participants that responded to our survey. Great, it's a large number. However, why didn't you include the higher education in the survey? Um, because to, to be totally honest, Fatma, we felt that the people that really needed support um, in that transition were uh, K-12 schools. Um, many uh, higher education institutions, uh, Fatma, do have some sort of online platforms that they're using, whether they're using Blackboard, Collaborate, whether they're using uh, their own sort of... Um, uh, home designed and homemade tools. Many, many, many higher education institutions were using them. Um, but the difficulty, uh, Fatima, the challenge was making sure that children aged from five to 16, 17, 18 that's year olds really didn't have an interruption in their education. Yes. That's true because they are the one who is facing the problem. So, Victoria, can you tell us when was the research conducted? Okay, so to be honest, we didn't actually, uh, we didn't really wait, uh, Fatima. Uh, immediately, the minute that schools were instructed to close down physically, we put our, uh, as you said, nicely phrased, our heads together as researchers, we reached out to school principals. We wanted to get a gist, Fatima, of who would be interested in participating in our research. And we actually found, Fatima, that there was a huge welcome from the community and people were actually happy to support, even though I would say that the schools were in crisis. So if we look at um, the time frame, data collection time frame, was literally the whole of July we spent collecting uh, data, Fatma. And Fatma, if I just give you some uh, statistics, uh, the total sample, as I said earlier, was 2,692 in terms of participants. If I, um, if I uh, sort of digest those a little bit further, a total sample of 983 were students uh, across schools in the UA uh, UAE, 767 were teachers, 164 school principals, and 778 parents actually responded to the survey. It's a good sample. That's good sample, give us a clear idea about that. And, and over Fatma, over a very short period of time. Obviously, Fatma, that doesn't mean that we, we, we weren't faced with the challenges. We, we, we as, as any research team, were faced with some challenges and we're not able to cover those uh, at a later stage. Thank you, Dr. Khadija. So, Ms. Maya, can you give us a clear idea of the key finding of the research? Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Um, so, uh, thank you so much, Dr. Khadija, for that uh, um, uh, detailed intro. Uh, it's quite important that we highlight the numbers because numbers uh, always, with statistics, as a PhD uh, scholar at, at Hamdan by Mohammed Smart University, I've learned that statistics and numbers talk. They're the ones that actually give you the real data that help us to reach out to conclusions and from there find solutions. So as we were, um, you know, I was 
I'm, a I'm also the chairperson of the Board of Governors at Dubai Carmel School. And when, uh, when Hamdan and Mohammed, uh, my, my heart and my love uh, <laughs> approached and, and said, Maya, we need, to, we need your efforts in this. I was, I was very honored and um, it, it was actually very early on in COVID. Like I remember people were, were struggling as a school. It took us about three weeks to get online. To actually that disruption that 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 movement from face to face to online education we needed like three weeks just to figure out what program should be should be used what medium is the best how can we how can we start teaching how can we correct uh, assessments and homework and and relate to parents and, and 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 still function as a school but function in this cloud which was very interesting. Um, and uh, alhamdulillah, I, I realized that we live in the United Arab Emirates um, where our leaders are very forward thinking and um, things have, have to happen quickly. So alhamdulillah, we also have the resources. So we have, we have alhamdulillah, Wi-Fi connection. We have, uh, we have programs. We have a lot of all of these uh, important uh, uh, resources because if you actually look at, at uh, resources around the world uh, from the COVID-19 crisis um, United Nations according to United Nations 3 billion people have no internet access just because of just because of COVID-19 can you imagine that people uh, had to um, um, manage students about about 1.5 students were reflected around 80% of the global student population. So the, the, the coronavirus impacted 1.5 billion students. Can you imagine around the world? These numbers are huge. Um, living in the United Arab Emirates and being in Dubai and specifically with Hamdan bin Mohammed Smart University being pioneers of online education. As a student at Hamdan, I didn't find any, any problems because I was always online. I always had face-to-face -face once, uh, once or three times a semester. And then you know it was it was it was we and it was it was like almost flying, Yanni. So um, the, the the trick was to get all the public schools and the private schools on board, and that was the challenge. So to go to some of the numbers, um, when we looked at um, there were there were there were there were six main objectives that we were looked at: uh, the online and uh, online and. Um, uh, the, the impact of online and distance learning, that was one. We looked at that. We also looked at psychological well-being because you know being alone in at home and studying alone and the pressure on parents and the pressure on on the teachers. Imagine imagine teaching kindergarten through online. It, it's not something easy. Um, so that was also looked at. Um, three. What are some of the needs? What are what do parents need? Students need? Uh, teachers? Uh, uh, supervisors? What do what do these what did these stakeholders need? We we looked mainly at four stakeholders: students, teachers, leaders, and parents. So they were all these four stakeholders. The framework um, were asked. So surveys went out to students, to teachers, to, to leaders, and parents. And the six objectives were examined: the impact of online distance uh, learning, uh, their psychological well-being, uh, their needs. What did they need? Uh, we even looked at principals' monitoring ability. Are, are principals able to monitor uh, students and monitor their schools? Because when you're in face-to-face, -face, you're actually easy. You could just walk into any classroom and, and, and discuss and chat and, and see and, and actually look at one-on-one -on -one performance of children and students. But uh, it wasn't the case, obviously. 
Uh, number five, the fifth objective that we also looked at was the level of satisfaction. So basically, how do the parents, how do the teachers, how do the students, how do the, um, uh, the principals, are they satisfied of the level of education delivery, um, the teaching and learning delivery, the curriculum delivery? Is the curriculum actually met? And finally, last but not least, do we, uh, do we, do we continue implementing online distance learning? And this is something, it was, when I, when I tell you the numbers, you'll, be, you'll actually be uh, impressed. Uh, I'm glad that we're post-corona now, but we've learned so much. And as we're going through our talk, we'll also discuss what have we learned from, from COVID and uh, what do we need to move forward? So to really, to really hone down on the public and private sector, it was interesting that um, students and parents were asked on the, four, on the six objectives, and it, it, it seemed that the public sector and the private sector, students from both sectors, uh, the numbers were very similar in terms of performance, independent learning, satisfaction, continuity next year. So basically, um, uh, students uh, <laughs> performed uh, very, very similarly. So if I give you an example, public sector performance of teach of, of learning was 56, 56%. Uh, performance of private sector was 48%. It wasn't very significant. The, the, the difference is not very significant. If you actually look at the overall, it's just 52% performance level. So when you look at those numbers, they're very close. So it seems that students were able to, uh, what's the right word, were able to uh, handle themselves well, uh, performance-wise, uh, were able to learn independently. The numbers there were very close as well. It was a 61% uh, as an overall uh, uh, number, where 61% said, "Yeah, we can we can handle public and public and private students." as well as satisfaction, are you satisfied as a student? Yes, I'm satisfied. Uh, well, that was very close um, as well. It was about 60% overall performance between both, uh, between both categories. And then finally, uh, do you want to continue next year? Um, and even in that, they were similar. It was lower than the others. So, so it was a, almost like a 45%. So if you look at the numbers, 45% out of 100%, it's like, I don't know if I want to continue, but if I have to, I will. That's how students took it. Um, now, if we look at parents, parents, uh, is, is my child able to learn at their own pace? Am I satisfied with uh, the level of education? Um, the overall, overall percentage was very near as well. Um, there is some level of satisfaction, about 60% uh, from private schools and 56% from public schools. So an overall of 58% of satisfaction of parents. Uh, actually, that's impressive because the, whole, the the load was on parents. Let's be honest. Yeah. It, it, well, yes, I'm a mother of a special needs child. Alhamdulillah. Her name is Dalia. She's a beautiful child. Um, we had to manage from the home for a whole year and a half. How do you do that as a parent? You send them to school to learn skills. And this is the special needs. Like you have special needs. Uh, children with or, or either or, either autistic or ADHD or you know any, any or dyslexia. So parents that don't have the skills, they don't have the and and I remember I was one of those parents where we weren't allowed to bring in anybody into the house. Do you remember when we weren't allowed to get uh, uh, to to drive in any car without a permission slip or you'd get fined? It was some kind. So so for us to set, to actually see that parents were 
hmm, satisfied, 60% in, in private were satisfied, total of 58% were satisfied with, uh, with the online and distance learning. That's actually not a bad number at all. So numbers are very near there. Uh, was my child able to learn on their own pace? Um, it was very also very near, strangely. Um, they also believed that 56% uh, for both public and private sector believe that um yes uh, that we like half half basically half half yeah they they can actually learn alone but better not to <laughs> so there is that that factor where i'd rather send my child to school but my child is able today to learn on their own remember uh, dr khadija said this uh, rightly said that the shift was uh, was it, it's the word disruption is the best word to describe what happened to schools. Corona came at the time, Corona forced people. You know what I think? I really believe that if Corona hadn't hit, we wouldn't have shifted this no. whole mindset, this whole culture, this whole ecosystem mm -hmm. of how parents and teachers and the world in general. Do you know if Corona didn't hit? I really believe that we were still going to be about maybe 10 years away from proper use of artificial intelligence. Today, we are in the fifth industrial revolution. We've passed the fourth industrial revolution. And it, it, it shifted so quickly from the fourth industrial revolution to the fifth industrial revolution, like a snap because of Corona. The last slide on the numbers, which was quite interesting and is where my, where my heart is. And my heart is in well-being and uh, um, uh, mental health. In, in, you know, specifically for leaders and specifically for principals, but also in, in this research, we looked at well-being for uh, students, uh, teachers, principals, and to, to really, really look down into this, I'm gonna tell you about teachers. Teachers were very mentally affected um, by uh, their well-being was very mentally affected. And they were, they were worried on how they were able to, to deliver, the quality of delivering. Um, again, I always say that teaching children online without actually sitting there and being there next to them on the floor for kindergartners, or even being on, you know, just being there. Like if you're like a teacher that you've been, you've been teaching traditionally face-to-face -face for, for 15, 20 years, and for you to shift I mean, think about it. I don't even have the right um, tools. I don't know. I don't have enough technology level, literacy level of technology. So how am I gonna? How am I gonna be doing this, right? So well-being was affected, and and when they were asked, um, that was the one the one uh, big pointer that um, teachers, uh, you know, both public and private sectors. We're not very satisfied about uh, their well-being. On the principles level, uh, this is another one. The principles. Remember when we said one of the objectives was to look at how well uh, principals felt they monitored their schools. It's interesting that both private sector and public sector principals believed that they didn't they didn't monitor significantly. Uh, like they used to. It, it was so low. Uh, the uh, public sector uh, principals felt that they, they led 31% that level of monitoring their schools and they didn't get enough. And even private sector, because there's the financial, there's a financial matter in it, you know, because private sector people pay for their education. So uh, principals felt that they were left out, that they weren't able to monitor as they are supposed to. However, however, as much as they were 
uh, principals were not too happy, and even teachers with teachers with well-being, they weren't too happy. They felt that they were low on that. Uh, principals were, you know, felt that their school monitoring was low. But the interesting part that on both private and public sectors, for teachers and principals, they were both satisfied with the online and distance learning medium and quality of teaching and learning given. So yes, I'm unable to monitor, yes, as a principal. On, as a teacher, yes, my well-being is affected and I'm, I feel like I'm lost, but I did my all. I gave it my best. I'm satisfied. I feel satisfied that with whatever happened this year, I gave it that, that all that I can do. So uh, those are basically the main pointers. And just to round up, the level of satisfaction in general for parents, principals, and teachers and students were quite in favor of continuity. And that's the last objective, the sixth objective that we spoke about. Are people, are the stakeholders in favor of continuing online and distance learning? And yes, they are. Um, what will happen next is, inshallah, next in the session. Thank you so much. You know, Maya, I have give, get the experience of experience two perspectives. I was a teacher throughout mm -hmm. Corona and I became vice principal. So I have two perspectives, the mm -hmm. teacher and academic. And it gave me an, an overview of how much teachers struggle and how principals struggle to monitor the schools. So it was very, very hard shift. Uh, but I think they will, they gain a lot of skills and they uh, smoothly go. Yeah. So you forced to. Yeah. The force give us a lot of skills that we didn't have before, but we need to gain it. So as you said, the shift was very fast. It needs. Yeah. The force was, it needs 10 years, as you say, but now in one year, we achieved everything. So, Dr. Khadija, can you give us a clear idea of the key implication of the research findings? Thank you so much, Fatma. Uh, Maya, uh, it's like you've actually uh, uh, totally uh, really got into a lot of detail. Amazing. You've kind of Thank made you. me reflect back on the, on the research you. that we did. Thank you so much. Uh, <clears throat> Fatma, can I just tell you, you know what uh, COVID-19, uh, basically, I think what it's done, it, what it's actually done to the world is it's, it's, it's like a guest it, it, it was an unwanted guest, if I can describe it like this, unwelcome. that has forced an unwelcomed, unwanted guest that forced itself into the homes of politicians, into the homes of policymakers, into the homes of teachers, into the homes of principals, into the, my home as an academic, into your home as a classroom teacher, into my home as, as a board, uh, as a chairwoman of a board of governors. Uh, COVID-19, uh, Fatma, forced itself into our homes unwanted basically to start off with and what it actually uh, did Fatma, it made everybody understand the transition from physical campus based learning to um to to fully online learning and and we've all lived those challenges we lived them Fatma, as parents we lived them as researchers we've lived them as faculty members and i'm sure that prof nabil will agree and my uh, agree and all the other colleagues and everybody here in the session that everybody was at the receiving end, but at different times, at different, I suppose, at different um, factors of those receiving ends. And even policymakers uh, that sit down and write policies, their children were 
at home and they were forced as policymakers to be able to support their own kids in that transition. So um, let me just come back to the implications and your question on the implications of the, of the research. Like any good research, it needs to have three key implications. And this is something that we teach to our um, master students and our uh, master learners and our PhD learners. If research is gonna be effective, it has, to it has to have implications for practice on the ground. It has to have implications for policy and it has to has, have implications for future research. So let's take those at a time. Let's take the, the first one is for research. So because, because um, nobody was actually prepared and really sort of, uh, well, not, not, not prepared, but nobody was expecting uh, COVID-19 to, 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 to come to, to enter our homes. Um, when the research was done, we actually, when we were doing a lot of the um, literature review, Fatima, and trying to find data and trying to find um, resources, we, we struggled to find um, data that looked at how to manage the K-12 schooling system at times of crisis. And no, no, uh, the most research that was out there was normally at times of war, times of famine, times of uh, civil wars, etc. But to be able to manage schools, K-12 uh, schools, at times of COVID-19 was the first, exactly. So one of the key implications that our research for Atma has opened that little door and given an avenue to other researchers to continuing. And I can guarantee you that at HBMSU, it's been our doors opened halfway through and we're gonna continue this journey. We're gonna to continue to do research to look at the impact, not just of COVID-19, but the impact of transiting, moving schools, of transferring schools, a paradigm shift from full, fully physical campuses to actual online learning. So one of the key implications for researchers for us, um, Fatima, is we, we, we've learned through this experience over, over that last year is that it's really important that we have virtual research teams, Fatima, uh, across the globe where we can actually tap base and we can connect with them to be able to come together and do further research very and very, very limited uh, research that was actually available when we started Fatima. So that's in terms of the one component of the implications of research, um, uh, research funding. The second one, uh, Fatima, uh, cuts into two categories. One is for uh, practice and one is for uh, policy. And I think Maya is going to look at the impact it has for policymakers, so I'll leave that. Let's look at uh, practice, uh, Fatima. What implications has this study or this research, um, what, what implications does it have um, for practice on the ground. Now, when we say practice on the ground, uh, Fatima, our key stakeholders are teachers, K-12 teachers, the implications that it has. The, one of the key implications is that teachers need further professional development training. Now, that doesn't mean it's just getting a series of uh, workshops and webinars on how to use technology. No. Do you remember, Fatima, that initially we, we went fully uh, online, then there was yeah. a cascaded, and Maya will remember, of going back uh, blended. So you would have a teacher in a class of say 25 students and three would be physically in the class, Maya, and I think you, you, can, you can sort of relate to this. And then you've got sort of um, 20, for example, at home. How, how does she or he manage that sort of, that class, what happens to classroom management? It's just totally gone out into yes. thin air, basically. Absolutely. And, 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 and I personally have to say that I, I would sit sometimes with my own kids and I would see those teachers struggling because who do they answer? Do they answer Miss, Miss, Miss who's in the, in the, sort of, uh, on the screen there? Or do they answer that child that's sat in front of them? So teachers, let's look at teachers. Teachers really do need um, a lot of support. And it's about time, particularly, 
that, um, that schools, and I know that many schools do have budgets for professional development, but guys, we really need to invest in our teachers and we shouldn't hold back. And we need to tap into those um, budgets. And I know some school principals aren't going to be happy about this, but let's create some controversy here. We need to widen the scope for school, um, school professional development budgets for teachers. Um, the other thing is, Fatma, teachers, as, as Maya correctly said, teachers' well-being, teachers struggled, really. It's not about that they struggled to manage, or I don't like to use the word control, but manage um, students in those environments. Teachers struggled to actually um, evaluate student performance because if cameras weren't on, you may, you may find situations of students cheating, cheating in online assessments, online quizzes. How do we make sure that our teaching force in the United Arab Emirates, whether they're working with the private sector or government sector, how do we ensure that they are fully and were and will be in the future fully prepared to evaluate student uh, testing, student performance? The other thing, Fatima, uh, on the ground is um, international assessments. For example, exams like the IGCSEs and the SAT exams, um, uh, Cambridge um, and Edexcel obviously made a decision to not have those exams physically. So teachers were, were given bigger and greater tasks of predicting, and Maya, because the school that she's in is a British curricular school, were given a bigger and a, a bigger job by predicting grades. Were teachers really prepared and trained to do that? Mm, we, need to, we need to question that. We need to look at that. Um, how do teachers cope in, in challenging situations like that? So one of the key implications, uh, Fatma, is practice. And it really, really needs to be looked at. And we as an institution are very, very happy to share this research report with schools um, in the United Arab Emirates and overseas to look at, I suppose, some of the key recommendations that we've listed, uh, that we've, we've suggested in, in this uh, study, Fatma. Thank you. Actually, that's interesting that you mentioned the assessments because one of the hard, uh, hardest the, most that challenging. Yeah. the teachers are always complaining how to assist the children because I am in kindergarten vice principal. So how do they assist those children when they are on screen? They don't know the parents, they are helping them, who's doing the assessment, who's doing the homework. So this is very challenging. Absolutely. Fatma, can I, if you just allow me, Fatma, to add one other thing. Uh, COVID-19, what it's done for some universities, and particularly Hamdan Mohammed University, it's helped us to create a bridge that, in, in uh, I, I would say many, many years ago, that bridge was a little bit of a wobbly bridge. It's helped us to create a stronger bridge with the K-12 sector um, as, a, as a higher ed uh, institution. And because we've actually reached out to schools and we've said to them, our doors are open, we've created two key crash courses, Fatma, one crash course looked at how to be a good content developer within 24 hours, how to be a good online instructor within 24 hours. So we tried as an institution to do our best. And this, uh, this study has helped us, Fatma, bridge our connections yeah. with K-12 schools. And, and I would say that uh, the K-12 industry, uh, the, the higher ed industry has an ethical obligation to support K-12 schools in that transition. Thank you, Fatma. Thank you, Victoria. So, uh, Ms. Maya, can you tell us a little bit of, uh, about the key impact of the research funding on policy makers? Absolutely. Um, okay, 
So I like, I always love numbers. I've, I've numbers speak to me the most. And before I go into implications, I just wanna give you uh, really uh, quick pointers on why and how policymakers were forced and need to be, uh, the policymakers needed to take decisions immediately. In China alone, they had to deliver education to 180 million students via television. So policymakers had to change for 180 million students how the medium should be given instead of face-to-face. -face. Can you imagine that, that the, the magnitude of that policy, that, 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 that decision-making? That's one. Another one is many institutions have great challenges in effectively using technology to drive student success. So how can we actually use technology like Hamdan and Mohammed Smart University to the betterment of our students? Only 50% have student success data store in place. So basically, um, uh, we, we are not really sure, the, the world is not really sure if uh, uh, students can actually effectively use technology. So policymakers really have a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, responsibility in stake. Um, to go just to shift a little bit, because as a school, we, we, we help graduate students. So looking at the universities, 89% of university presidents this year expressed serious concern about financial institutions and financial future. So if everything is going to go online, um, as, a, as a policymaker and as a decision maker, I need to rethink, and as a president, I need to rethink how am I going to, how am I going to move forward? How am I going to um, bring in my resources and um, um, maximize the most out of what I have? Last but not least, 92% of university presidents are most concerned, and this is where I always like to highlight, they're very concerned about mental health of their students and their staff. So when we look at policymaking, there are so many, so many um, factors that we have to look into. We have to look at the success of the technology. We have to look at uh, the success of the student, success of the, the, the delivery of the technology, the actual financial part of the, of, the, of the delivery of the actual education, and then also mental health. In this, in our specific um, research that we have, uh, that we just, we did, we are talking about, we wanted to create, Hamdan Mohammed Smart University wanted to create more of an ecosystem. What is it that policymakers need for, for them to be able to take decisions and move forward? There are a bunch of uh, pointers here that need to be put in place. Uh, who are you partnering with? So, so policymakers need to know who am I partnering with? Who can actually help me deliver better education online? How innovative am I? Policymakers need to think of that. Um, remember, it's an ecosystem. It's, it's an ecosystem is basically how you think, how this, this whole level of, of this cloud of, of disruption of online and distance learning education, there has to be an ecosystem that supports uh, online and distance learning. So I need the proper innovation. I need the proper partnership. I need the proper education curriculum that's going to actually help me move forward. I also have to have some protocols. Protocols meaning the UAE government, for example, they gave us, mashallah, for us, we, we deal with, with KHTA. Every other day, they have some, 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 uh, some notes coming out, some, some, you know, some policies coming out that support school, you know, 
And that's great. Uh, then obviously there's also another factor that policymakers need to look at is the pedagogy. How do we teach? How do we teach? How, does the, how do we ensure quality teaching and learning? Last but not least, and this is where Hamdan is pioneering in, and I'm so proud, I'm so proud to be a student there, a PhD scholar, actually a PhD candidate, I passed my exams, alhamdulillah, that was, that was a success, research. For us, policy make, for policymakers to actually make it out there in an education and in transforming and moving from uh, changing just in general that shift, we need research, we need numbers. So that's, that's basically what, um, uh, what the, the impact of policymakers, what this has impacted us, us as policymakers as well. So Ms. Maya, what's next? What's post-COVID? Oh, wow. Oh, wow, wow. <laughs> There's a lot. There's a lot to think about there. I mean, if you really think about it, it's, it's something that is, um, is completely um, uh, very, very, very challenging. I'll tell you what. When you look at the future of learning, there are so many questions that come up. And you, the, the, first and foremost, you worry about the quality of education, the quality of, uh, of mental health of our students. There is a revolution, no, no doubt about that. But looking into the future, I need to take one of the solutions, take current practices that are working now, make them better, and abandon the ones that don't. We have a habit of clinging on to old ways. Sometimes when we say disruption means as leaders, we actually have to have the gut to adapt. Adapting is, is so important because it is, the, it is the, the epitome of change. So if you want to change, you have to be ready to adapt. And that's emotional intelligence 101. So for the future, um, definitely take current practices that are working make them better. Also, future systems need to uh, uh, be more engaging, uh, need to believe that uh, the teachers and service workers are more appreciated. Learning can happen anywhere. I mean, this is this is a lesson learned. I don't have yeah. to learn uh, uh, in a classroom, yeah, in that room, right? I can, I, can, I can be on my mobile phone and, and yeah, be learning. Um, yeah. yeah, and-, and That's uh, true. And, the lesson, the other lesson learned is that um, we know now that our, that our children and our, 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 our teenagers are able and are independent. They're able to learn yeah. alone. And that independence is so crucial for the next wave of, of, uh, of revolution, especially here in the United Arab Emirates. Um, mm. Last but not least, the future of learning there are three main questions that we really need to, and I will leave, I will leave everybody with these three questions. Uh, number one, how does it really feel to learn in this way, online distance learning? Are you satisfied? Are you happy? Are you actually getting the better, the, 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 the gist of it? Because you know what? I found out that you don't need to learn from an hour video. Uh, uh, you, can, you can learn that much from a micro learning video that it's about, that's about 15 seconds, like on TikTok. You can actually learn so much just from the, the different mediums out there. So the future of learning is really the, 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 the different resources and the, to accept as policymakers and as educationists and as principals and as parents, as students, as teachers, that the future doesn't operate just from a cloud anymore. 
learning is everywhere, everywhere. What that's we true. need to concentrate true. on is how to make our students aware and mature to be safe out there in the cyber, cyber, cyber space that we have, because it also comes with, uh, with a lot of challenges as well. Thank you so much. I'm so sorry if I took much of your time. It's okay, but to, the discussion took a lot of time. So we only have a couple of minutes to answer questions. So we'll open the floor for them. Um, so the first question is, uh, who do you think succeeds more, public schools or private schools in the matter of online education? Uh, can I answer that, uh, Fatima? Go ahead, Victoria. I think that's a really, really controversial question, and I think, and if anybody says that they have the answer to that, they would be uh, they would be in a difficult situation. Um, yeah. I don't think that. Um, I think that people that were working in the private sector said, yeah, we did a better job. And those that are working in the government sector said, yeah, we did a better job. Mm -hmm. uh, at the end of the day, I think the philosophy of the private public sector, I don't really sort of like very much. I think the whole idea is that in the private sector and the public sector, they are all educators. And at the end of the day, all of those K-12 students, kids, young people, whatever you want to call them, are our future generations. And we, um, during Corona, we had an ethical, legal, moral obligation to support them as much as we can we know that certain schools in the public in the private sector struggled due to financial uh, reasons schools that were obviously already charging low fees and then when they moved and they were asked to move to being fully online Fatima struggled because you needed a really strong technological infrastructure well, I can tell you one thing uh, Fatima from my visits to schools and from being in close contact with the, with the, with the K to 12 schools is that schools that were very, very strong um, on technology and were tech savvy um, found that transition uh, quite an easy transition. But again, Fatma, it's not just about having the technological infrastructure. It's, being, it's making sure that you're pedagogically, your teachers are pedagogically sound and grounded. Um, and so many times I'd go into to schools and I find that teachers have the, have the capability and the knowledge and the understanding to deliver very, very good teaching and learning, but they just unfortunately didn't have the tech skills. And sometimes you found that teachers were very good with technology, but weren't grounded pedagogically. I hope that's helped to answer that, that very controversial question. Thank you, Victoria. Uh, Tina asked, where can she read the full research? So where can she get the research? We are happy to share that, uh, Fatima. Our LRM team will be able to share that with uh, with, with, with uh, uh, sort of uh, our audience today. Uh, if um, I think we have everybody's email addresses, so we'll be able to post a copy of that research out to them. I'm not sure if it's actually posted on the university website, but again, it may be on our university website if they'd like to check as well. Okay, because we don't have much time, so this is the last question. How no, are you? Fatima, if we can, we've got a few more minutes. We can give people more, more, okay. more, more, okay. more time. How were you able to convince education institutions to participate in your survey? Was there any resistance or any challenges faced during the data collection phase? Maya, do you want to go answer that? <laughs> Wallahi, Anna, I, I remember we were, as a student, as a student scholar at, at, at Hamdan, I appreciate helping because I know that I'm going to get that time where Absolutely. I'm going to need help, you know? So um, I, I was, I was more than glad to, to, we did it very quickly. SubhanAllah, with all sectors, but I don't know about uh, Dr. Khadija. 
what kind of can resistance I, do you have? Yeah, um, can, can I just tell you, uh, Fatma and, and Maya as well, um, participating in research is obviously not a forced um, thing. You can't force people to do that. It was, it was totally voluntary. And Fatma, we actually found out that there wasn't resistance. Um, school leaders, parents, um, the students with themselves were very, very happy to come forward and to help answer our survey. Uh, so there was no resistance with that at all. People were really friendly about supporting us. That's good, actually, that's good. Because not all, especially in that period of time. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. So the other question is, how were you able, to, no, this is the same question. What education app were used to engage students? Um, okay. can, I, can I take that? Yeah, yeah please, Maya. Yeah, that's your area. Yes. There, there are a couple, but the one that we did that really worked for us was Microsoft Teams. We're able to do everything on Microsoft Teams. We actually that have. Yeah, it, it was the best medium. And uh, uh, subhanAllah, those who, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, program developers that, that came up with Microsoft Teams definitely made millions and billions. Definitely. <laughs> actually, out of that. So, yeah. So I'm sure like they're they're on top of the world now. <laughs> yeah. Well, what one what positive you can definitely tell us all that Fatma, some people became very rich as a result of okay. yeah. and some people also became very, some people became very poor as well. You know, the teachers come up with a lot, lots of apps to use. Some right. I don't hear before. I didn't hear about it before. So they the the app of the education app went viral viral absolutely absolutely yeah. absolutely so then this question is the right i think because now it's 6 30. do you think private school should reduce school fees to cover and cover time and COVID the time consider students were not attending school that like they want like they was not getting full benefit they are being oh this Fatma. is, this is Maya, Maya, this yeah. is where me and you di will disagree. Is, <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, Go ahead, Maya. Doctor, start, start. Yeah, okay. So, this controversial question, we needed to take the name <laughs> of that person, Fatma, that asked that controversial question and get their details later on. Um, now, Fatma, if you're going to ask me as a parent, or yeah. are you asking me as a researcher or as an academic? Are you asking? You're supposed to be on our side. Right. So I am hearing the clarify. four perspectives. The right. So let me clarify a, a couple of things. Oh, obviously, Fatima and Maya and, and our um, members of the audience, if um, private schools, um, tend to be profit-based schools. I mean, we, we can't hide from that. We can't shy away from that. Otherwise, many of them wouldn't really That's exist. They, they are about creating profit. I know they're not all about creating profit. They're about delivering good quality education, but in return, they, they would like to make profit. And that's, you know, that's what private schools are about. Yes. And we, that's a fact. Um, if I can, I'd like to answer that question because uh, that's a that's, they call it as it's, it's a double sworded um, question. It's got two sharp edges. If you were to ask me as a parent, I would have been very appreciative if the private sector reduced their fees during COVID. And, and I say that as a parent. That doesn't mean that they uh, used less resources. We know that schools saved on bills, schools saved on DWA bills, schools saved on electricity bills. We know that schools saved on, um, on campus management services, 
uh, outsourcing, uh, landscaping, all of those sorts of things. That, that's fact, right? Uh, and I actually was talking to a colleague of mine recently, and interestingly, he stated that his school made an extra four million dirhams, um, without going into a lot of detail, during COVID, uh, due to those cost cutting. So again, Fatima, I just want to be very clear. So it's a controversial response. I've responded to that as as as, as a parent because I'm paying those fees. That's why, and they're hitting the pocket. Maya, you need to you need to put your mic on then. <laughs> right. Right. Now, if I was to respond as an educator, as a researcher, I totally appreciate at the same time, Fatma, that schools had to invest uh, millions in their technological infrastructure, if not thousands, millions in their tech infrastructure. Schools had to invest lots and lots of money in training their teachers. Uh, schools also had to pay out um, bus companies that they'd made agreements with, et cetera, et cetera, pending salaries, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that's, a, that's, that's a, it's a controversial question that has a... Um, a, a, a bit of a tricky response, Fatma. I hope I've responded to that. And I hope that Maya, as a chairwoman of the Board of Governors, um, hasn't found that sensitive. Not at all, because we are, uh, you know, Dubai Carmel School is um, a school where we feel with the people, we've been with the people, our, our range, our, our fees range are very, uh, very manageable. Uh, we we did deduct. We did deduct activity fees. Anything that had to do with actual students being in activities, uh, whether swimming or karate or um, you know any or any of any of the football or basketball, whatever. That about thousand five hundred dirhams was removed. Remember, we're talking about um, middle middle class uh, sort of we're delivery for for people from middle class. So um, we were able to do that. However, at the same time you rightly said it dr khadija we had to train teachers we had to bring in uh, the you know the the actual Tech infrastructure technology uh, and uh, there was just a whole lot in fact we had to so, so, uh, we did reduce some salaries especially for the bus drivers that was something for us we, we, buses stopped completely um, but at the same time, we took, we took, I, I'm being very, very, very uh, transparent here. We actually uh, um, uh, uh, gave more salary to other teachers that were, were investing a lot in learning and investing. It, you know, in Corona, it was 24 7. There was no, yeah, no stop. A lot of time, investing a lot of times. No, no stop at all. They're, they're constantly in training, constantly learning, they're constantly teaching, they're constantly correcting. It's, it's, it was tough. It was tough, so a little appreciation made 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 the difference. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, you're absolutely right. It's it's a tricky question, and yes, I have a lot of perspectives, various perspectives, academic perspectives. So now that we have come to the end of our webinar, the purpose of this collaborative research was to measure the impact of transforming regular classroom to online and distance education during COVID-19 pandemic and the outcome of school performance. So the findings highlighted new realities and preceding challenges faced by the institutions and opportunities that could be attributed to enforce distance teaching and learning paradigm. So thank you, Dr. Khadija. Thank you, Ms. Maya, for an okay. interesting and eye-opening <laughs> discussion. Uh, thank you very much. And I just want to remind the audience that they can get their certificate by clicking the link. And any question they have, they can send it to the LRM and they will answer for it. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. And I hope uh, Fatma, if you can allow me to take this opportunity to thank yourself, Fatma, 
Fatma is a graduate from Hamdan with Muhammad University. It makes us proud, Fatma, to see people like yourself that are very sort of um, able to um, manage sessions like this, even though you're not an expert. And this is Fatma's first um, first experience with this. So you've done an amazing job, Fatma. Thank you so much for volunteering. Uh, Maya is a PhD student, uh, scholar at Hamdan Muhammad University. As in a key stakeholder, uh, Maya, in uh, our sort of educational landscape. Thank you so much for attending with us today. And thank you to our colleagues in LRM for um, supporting this initiative. And thank you to all of our um, audience members and members of the community. And hopefully uh, this is a start in a series, in a monthly series where uh, educators and members of the public can join us. Thank you so much, colleagues. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Dr. Khadija. Thank you, Fatma. And thank you, Maya. Most welcome. Thank you, Prof. Thank you, Prof. Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye.